This is the Best Song Podcast, an oral history of the first 90 years of the Academy Award for Best Original Song. The Best Song Podcast was made possible by the generous support of the following. Paulus Edukas, Terry Freerks, Tina Fry, Jeff Glazer, Mark Hollingsworth, Douglas Meacham, Mark Smith, The Sokolov Family, Colin Stokes, Adrian Quinn Washington, and Ben Watson. Let's settle in now for another year in movie music with host Jeff Cummings. Welcome to episode 60. I have a feeling this is going to be a longer than usual episode because I have a lot of songs to play for you and a lot of stories about creating the Oscar-nominated songs of 1992. Plus, I have invited not one, not two, but three Oscar-nominated songwriters to the show to share some behind-the-scenes stories about the songs they wrote and the journey to the Academy Awards. It won't be as long of a show as a typical Academy Awards ceremony, and there won't be any dumb montages to make it feel even longer. Fasten your seatbelts, and let's get started not by talking about the movies of 1992, but what was happening in the real world that year. In April 1992, four police officers who had been videotaped beating Rodney King in Los Angeles were acquitted of assault charges. The verdict sparked the three-day riots in and around Los Angeles when looting and fires disrupted lives of Angelinos and killed 53 people. Johnny Carson's departure from The Tonight Show in May 1992 after 30 years filled entertainment headlines for about a week, as did the critical reviews of his successor, Jay Leno. And another pop culture event happened in October on Saturday Night Live when Sinead O'Connor ripped up a photo of Pope John Paul II in protest of the Catholic Church's handling of sexual abuse. But around Thanksgiving time, two movies came along to entertain the world and bring a lift to the global box office. If you were around in November 1992, you were no doubt swept up in the excitement surrounding the release of the movie The Bodyguard. Kevin Costner was starring in his third movie in 18 months, and it turned out to be yet another success, at least financially. And it was a success in a long line of moneymakers that he had going back to The Untouchables in 1987. His leading lady in The Bodyguard was Whitney Houston in her film debut as a singer and actress who needs protection after she receives death threats. The two fall in love, and therein lies the real conflict of the story. Can Costner do his job and objectively protect the woman he loves? The premise was enough to bring in Whitney Houston fans, Kevin Costner fans, and fans of romantic dramas. The critics tore the movie to pieces, but it still earned $122 million in the United States for Warner Brothers. And the soundtrack was more popular than the movie, thanks to Whitney Houston. In just a matter of weeks, it took the throne as the best-selling movie soundtrack of all time, dethroning Saturday Night Fever. The song that had people going crazy was Houston's cover of I Will Always Love You, which she sings at the end of the movie. I know you've been listening to this podcast since the beginning, so you know that the song was not eligible for an Academy Award because it was written in 1973 by Dolly Parton and then sung by Dolly Parton in 1983's The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. If Twitter and other social media outlets had been around when the Oscar nominations were announced on February 17, 1993, 
I'm sure the internet would have been on fire with people threatening to boycott the Oscars because I Will Always Love You was not among the nominees for original song. Now, why would they have been in an uproar? Because they wouldn't have known much about the rules regarding song eligibility. I remember some TV media outlets had to go on the offensive and tell people that it was not eligible for an Academy Award and why. It's one of the very few instances in movie history when the most popular song from a movie is not eligible to compete for an Academy Award. As time goes by from Casablanca and old-time rock and roll from Risky Business, as well as Rock Around the Clock from The Blackboard Jungle, are just a few examples. I Will Always Love You wasn't eligible for an Academy Award, but The Bodyguard did get some love from the music branch. The film earned two nominations for original song, becoming the seventh film to get double song nominations. The songs that were nominated served as plot devices for the movie just as much as I Will Always Love You and showcased Houston's spectacular singing voice. Alphabetically, the first song nominee from The Bodyguard is I Have Nothing, and it was the song that had the most impact in the film. It's the main song in the film within a film starring Houston's character, though we don't know if her character in this film is a singer or if someone else performs it in that movie. I Have Nothing is also named as the winning song in the fictional Academy Awards show featured in The Bodyguard's climactic scene. Before that big scene, Whitney Houston's character, a popular singer named Rachel Marin, sings it at a gala event in Miami. Only about two minutes of the song is heard in this scene, but you could tell that Whitney Houston is singing it live because you can hear her breath often. Here's the full version of the song, which could be construed as Rachel singing her love to Kevin Costner's Frank, or just a song that is Rachel's biggest hit at that moment in time.
In real life, I Have Nothing was written by David Foster and Linda Thompson. The two had married just before working on this song for The Bodyguard, giving us yet another married couple working together as songwriters. Foster had received an Oscar nomination six years earlier as the co-writer of Peter Cetera's Glory of Love when Foster was working as Cetera's producer. Foster had never worked with Whitney Houston before embarking on the gig of a lifetime as producer of The Bodyguard album. During the process of creating the album with Houston and Arista Records CEO Clive Davis, Foster snuck in I Have Nothing as a possible track on the album, and it made it into the movie. As for Linda Thompson, her life was pretty much part of the tabloids before this project. She was a former beauty queen who was involved in a serious relationship with Elvis Presley from 1972 to 1976, and then married Bruce Jenner in 1980. The two divorced in 1986 when Jenner came out to her in the mid-1980s as a trans woman. Thompson had been doing okay as a songwriter in the 1980s, and her lyrics for I Have Nothing gave her the only opportunity she would get to be recognized by her peers. The second nominated song from The Bodyguard doesn't feature as prominently as I Have Nothing, but its appearance in the film helps to heighten the romantic tension between the two lead characters. Run to You 
was written by Judd Friedman and Alan Rich, who started working together in 1989 with the song I Don't Have the Heart for James Ingram. And to tell us more about their songwriting partnership and their work on The Bodyguard, I've invited Judd Friedman and Alan Rich to join the Best Song Podcast. How are you guys doing? It's great to have you here, Alan and Judd. Great to be here. It's been a crazy morning, and I'm sure this is going to get even, crazy, even crazier very fast. I hope not. We'll, we'll keep it on the rails here. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> let's start at the beginning. How did the two of you meet and begin this long-term songwriting partnership? Well, you know, uh, I we're both from New York. Alan had been out here for a while. I had just come out um, and bound, pounding the pavements, uh, trying to start trying to get established as songwriters. Alan was already doing some great stuff. Um, and uh, we had a mutual friend named Kathy Spanberger, who was already one of the up and rising stars at a company called Pure Music Publishing Company out here. And uh, I was doing a little kind of flirtation with them, doing one-off type deals with some songs, getting to know one another, thinking about doing a publishing deal, which ultimately we did. And, and it was a wonderful relationship. Um, all the big successes Alan and I had was during that period. But at this period, we were just getting to know one another. And Kathy kept saying to me, and I think kept saying to Alan, I know this guy, I think he'd really be a good fit for. Because he's similar sensibilities, similar types of people. And I think you guys should write together. Both of us were very busy, of course. We would always be like, yeah, that'd be great. And Alan and I disagree about this, but I think I met him once or twice at like some industry events, just, you know, hi, nice to meet you. And, you know, he's unforgettable, but apparently I'm completely forgettable. So um, anyway, he goes out to lunch. So she's always trying to get us together. He goes out to lunch with Kathy one day and they go back to her office. She's now the COO of Peer Music, by the way. She's a very illustrious, very, very well-known person in the publishing music publishing industry and fantastic person, very close friend. And she said, do you have a lyric that you're working on that you can give to Judd? And I said, well, I have a verse and a chorus, but I don't want to give it to anybody until I write my second verse. No, she said, no, you're giving it to me right now. And I think she called you right then and there. And I'm, uh, this is I'm sitting in an apartment for a friend because I was in between places. I had moved out of one place and the new place wasn't ready yet. Boxes every place. And all I had to, I'm working off an old DX7 keyboard. This is in 1988. DX7 keyboard plugged the radio RCA cable into a stereo. That's what I'm writing on, okay? Right? I mean, you know, pretty down and dirty. And I'm sitting there playing, and the phone rings, you know? And I pick it up. A friend had said, you know, pick up the phone, take messages if you want. And I pick it up. It's um, Kathy. She says, I got Alan here. I'm putting him on the phone. And Alan's like, oh, you know, she forced me to call. And, you know, I got this lyric. It's not really ready. And, you know, I said, all right, well, just read it to me. I'm thinking, you know, what's... When you look at a lyric on a page, it's very flat. And I always have um, made excuses. Um, but, the you know, Kathy was onto something. Those days, they really nurtured new relationships and they tried to make matches. Publishers. Well, even then, darling, I don't know. I mean, she was exceptional. There, yeah. Even then, there were very few really great publishers, but she was one of them. So I gave him this verse and this chorus. And... Um, and you take it, you take it from there. Well, yeah. So he reads me a verse and chorus of a song called I Don't Have the Heart. It wasn't exactly the way it ended up being because I ended up changing it a little bit, writing the music to it. I changed a couple of places just for the scan. I took a word or two out or a line or two and just ran it by Alan. Everything was cool. But he reads me this lyric. And I can say this because I'm I'm bragging about him here. I, I don't I don't like to talk about my own stuff, but this was his lyric idea. And I'm reading this lyric and the chorus of the song, I don't know if you know the song, but the chorus of the song says, 
first of all, it starts with your face is beaming. You say it's because you're dreaming of how good it's going to be. You say you've been around and now you've finally found everything you wanted and needed in me. And you think it's this gorgeous love song. And the chorus is going to be like, so come into my arms, baby. And then the chorus says, I don't have the heart to hurt you. That's the last thing I want to do. But I don't have the heart to love you, not the way you want me to. He reads me this. And I almost, I literally almost fell off my chair. It was so brilliant. So I said, goodbye now. I'm going to write this. And I hung up and ran over to the DX7. 15 minutes later, I had the basics of the song. It was just poured out of me. I was just, and that's rare, at least for me. You know, usually it's like slogging along. I don't know what, but this was so brilliant, so inspiring that I called him up and I said, Alan, I didn't call him Darling then. That's a whole other story. I said, Alan, I think I have something that I'm really excited about. Let's get together. And six days later, the song was finished and demoed. Totally done. All done. That's amazing. We'd never met before. We'd never, I mean, we'd met maybe for 10 seconds before. We'd certainly never written before. So yeah. it was just magic. At the beginning, my lyric is very flat on a page. And I'm always very apologetic because I always, because I write very conversationally and I don't write with like sophisticated. I write as if I'm having a conversation with you. And so I always feel embarrassed. But the thing about Judd, and I can brag about him because it's true, Judd would take my lyrics and he would elevate them and make me look like, like I was, you know, he would make them so great and make them come to life. He elevated my lyric. And, and so I, and he still does that 30 years later. And then it's no BS. I'm not saying it because he's in front of me. I'd say it behind his back. He, you know, I, he's my Burke Baccarat, you know. Interesting. Um, and he can, and he writes great lyrics too. And so, you know, it morphed into a lot of different ways. But and then the second, and then the second song was our Alita Adams song. I just had to hear your voice, and that went to number one adult contemporary. And we've been writing ever since. How did it feel to know that your first two songs together just exploded? It, it felt horrible. It was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing. But I don't have the heart. Oh no, I don't have the heart. I don't have the heart to hurt you. It's the last thing I wanna do. But I don't have the heart to love you. Not the way that you want me to. How did all of this translate into the two of you working on a song for the bodyguard? 
there was a breakdown, a one page or two page sheet uh, breakdown of four songs that a lot of songwriters got around the country for this new movie that was going to star Kevin Costner and Whitney Houston. I have it in my, you know, I still have Mentos. it. Yeah. And, and Jed and I decided, I mean, it was like, really, this was like. Trying to win the lottery. Yeah. So, I mean, everybody tried to write it. And when you really looked at the reality, there were four songs. And one ended up being originally was supposed to be what becomes of the brokenhearted, but Paul Young had it out and it became number one. So um, I think, you know, everybody takes credit for this too, but I think it was Maureen Crow, the music supervisor, who said, well, how's about Dolly's I Will Always Love You? But everybody takes credit. Oh no, I was the one who said it. I was the one who said it, but I really think it was Maureen Crow. And, um, and so that was one of the four songs. Then this I'm Every Woman, which is a remake of Shaka's song. David Foster was the producer and, you know, he was going to land a song. And so there was really, literally for the four main songs, there was only one slot for every of single Whitney, song. Whitney's four main songs. And that's really the truth. And, and the gods must have been in our favor. The initial lyric that I wrote, I wrote. Because it was a breakup song. They wanted, a, it was for breakups. It was a moment when Whitney and Kevin Costner separated the plane. And, and I, they wanted, they, 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 the brief said, we want a breakup song. This is what's happening. We didn't have a script. We didn't have any footage, nothing. Just a little paragraph each, right? So a person. I went through a breakup in my own life. That's I wrote it at the steering wheel. I wrote this initial, uh, initial verse and chorus. Um, and then Judd and I changed things and continued working on it together. And we did. And then we wrote the song, had a simple piano vocal demo with a string line, very simple. But we didn't know Clive Davis, but we knew somebody who worked for Clive Davis, Jerry Griffith, and our publishers, Carol Ware and Kathy Spamberg, all had connections. So we decided after Judd, and we did the, de the demo out of time, just that Judd, Judd plays a beautiful, he always plays an inspirational piano. You always get goosebumps when he plays. And I'm, I mean that. And so he Thank played you, a out of time demo, did a simple little string line. And then we and we sent it to Jerry Griffith. And we thought if Jerry Griffith likes the song, he's going to put it on Clive's desk. Now you can take it from there. So we did. And um, we get a call from Clive Davis. Alan got the first call again. We have the message from Clive Davis, too. Um, if, um, and so I get this message one day. Hi, this is um, a nice message. Uh, this is Clive Davis. And uh, I really like your song. Um, for the, you know, he said, Whitney does, too. And she likes it too. I can be reached at the Beverly Hills Hotel. I thought I was going to pass out. <laughs> Just getting the call from Clive Davis, first of all. Hysterical panic. And, and, and yeah, it, it, and then, so we get on the phone with him, right? He's going, we love the song. Um, he says, could you do me a favor? Remember this, darling? Could you just, and I just told the story. I teach songwriting at Los Angeles College of Music here because I love giving back to the kids. Alan also teaches at Musicians Institute for the same reason. I literally just told the story the other day about trying, because my class is in collaboration and, and I was saying there's another type of collaboration, which is with business executives in, in the entertainment industry, right? Particularly music executives. Now, Clive Davis is a great guy, brilliant, Harvard Law School, fantastic, one of the best, probably one of the best record executives ever, right? But the communication, when you try to try to figure out what people are trying are saying to you or want for you, sometimes can be very iffy. So we get on the phone with Clive and he goes, could you do me a favor? Because it was a very simple demo, as Alan said. Could you make it sound, go back in the studio and just make it sound a little more like a Whitney record, like a Whitney Houston record. 
So Alan and I look at one there and we're like, well, what do you mean by that, Clive? He goes, you know, like a Whitney record. That was it. <laughs> so, you know, we we looked at the song. And we said, okay, well, it doesn't have a guitar and it doesn't have drums. It had a little guitar actually, but we figured it's got. He just has to mean he wants it more fully produced, as I was saying before, because the of course everything on the radio. The song was out of out of time, and so we had we hired our friend Reed, who is a drummer and as well as a songwriter, and. That one song took over four hours just to try to match it. And there's sections that go slow and then sections that go fast. But we couldn't do anything about it. And so we uh, we, we just did the best we could and we sent it to, to Clyde. Yeah, we added some bass. We added a couple of other things. And, and, and it was like bar by bar by bar because I purposely played it without quantizing. It just felt right. You know, it just felt flowed really nice. So in four hours, we somehow pieced it together, made it feel like it made sense with the groove and they loved it and everything's cool. Right. So you think, Oh good. We're in like Flynn, which yacht do you want, Alan? You want the red one or the blue one? What do you think? Um, what's our not so fast is one of our other favorite phrases. Right. So what happens next, Alan? Um, we get a call from Mick Jackson, the director, and this is literally, I mean, I'm not verbatim, but <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. Your song for the movie. But, and I always said, why does it always have to be a but? Yeah, yeah. But, Alan's, we go, there's this one little thing, he says. And Alan and I are like, right? Change the scene from a breakup scene to a take a chance on me scene where we're going to use the song. And this is what he says. It wouldn't be too much of a problem to rewrite the lyric, right? So if you take one thing from this blog, okay? And for all the people out there listening, you want one, the most important lesson in the music business. When someone says something like this to you, like, could you do this? What's your response? Ready, darling? No problem, babe. Okay. We so we get off the phone. Hung up the phone and thought we were going to pass out. We were so, we, why can't anything be easy? <laughs> so we go back. <laughs> and then Clive called us and said, I heard about the change in the scene. He said, um, before you submit the song, please send it to me first for approval. And then, Judd, you can tell the other part of the story. And he says, but don't worry about anything because we love the song so much and we think it's such a hit. If it somehow doesn't work with the new lyric for the movie, we'll use it with the original lyric on our greatest hits record, which is coming out in a year. So we nod along and no problem, babe, right? Hang up and Alan and I go, no no possible way. We're not making that. That's we're not. This gonna is happen. Whitney Houston, her first movie. Kevin Costner. It's going to be humongous. It's going to get so much attention. She's. It's going to be all. We got to be on this. Got to be on this record, and we got to be in this movie, right? A uh, little asterisk there. Whitney's greatest hits record came out nine years later. So imagine the the the, the odds of our being on that one. You know, nine years later, we were on that one, but not as the extra song. You know, the extra like unknown right. song. So anyway, we go back and we rewrite the lyric. And then we and we send it to Clive. Clive said, you guys did a great job. Send it in and let's just see what happens. And the rest is history. They loved it. So it started out as a breakup song and then it became what we know as Run To You, which, yeah, I could when you hear it and when you see it in the movie, it definitely is where that attraction really starts. Yeah, the original chorus that I yeah. wrote was I don't have... Uh, the heart. Oh no, that's I don't have the heart. I want <laughs> to you 
I want to run to you just like I always did before. Come knocking at your door. I want to run to you how I want to come to you. But you're not there to run to anymore. That was the original chorus. And I thought that was such a great chorus. And I and, and it reflected what, what was going on in my life. The, the What ended up being when Jed and I rewrote it together was... Um, we knew we had to keep run to you. We had to keep that. We couldn't lose that. We had to figure out a way to say, I want to run to you and make it into a love song and a falling in love song, well, which we did. Your arms, keep me safe from harm. I want to run to you. But if I come to you, will you stay or will you run away? So that was the that was to take a chance on this. And yes. it worked beautifully as well. Um, I mean, I thought I actually thought the original one was even more poignant, but that's what happens when you're a songwriter. Sometimes your best lines are, you know, are thrown aside, but you, you know, you want to win the prize, you gotta do, you gotta, you know, go with the flow. Then I get a call from David Foster, who's producing it, right? And he says, Hey, love this. I'm producing it. Can we just use the demo? And I said, well, there's this one little thing. I said, it's out of time. And he goes, oh, man, you know, I knew there was something in there that felt like it wasn't quite locked in. I said, but I can recreate it in time. I can go back in with you and I'll do every note and quantize it. I'll just replay everything. And he said, come on in. Frank is watching a video of the song Run to You in the little poolside room in Rachel's mansion. And from her bedroom window, Rachel sees Frank watching the video. Frank sits up in his chair as Rachel literally runs toward the screen in the video, and Frank is mesmerized. Is he mesmerized by her singing, or the way she looks? Maybe it's both. There's nobody there, no one. 
of the greatest moments of all, we were invited to come down to the recording set, Whitney's recording session to watch her record the vocal. Now, I would have totally fainted, but Judge being, being um, I think he has a lot of confidence in himself and he's not afraid. Who was it? Was it David Foster or was it Whitney? David. So, well, you can tell that part of the story. Well, I was, doing, I was producing it with him. You know, I got an arrangement credit, but, I, but he was the producer. And so I was making the record with him and I was producing the vocal. And he turns to me, there was no scratch vocal on the new version. So you know what a scratch vocal is? Well, for our audience. Not really, no. Tell us what it is. It's like a lead vocal. If, if, uh, it could be from the demo. If, if another artist besides the artist who sang the demo or the, the, the version that's being presented to a film or, or a television show or an, an artist for their project, if that's someone other than the artist who's going to end up doing it, they, the artist usually likes to have something on tape in their headphones while they're where they're listening to it and singing it so they can refer to it. How does that part go? And you can just play the original scratch vocal or demo vocal. Guide vocal has a lot of uh, term, a lot of different terms. There was nothing on there because we had redone it. We'd redone the lyric. So Foster, so I sit down with Whitney for a half an hour. She walks in and she was a doll. I mean, we got so many stories about her. She was so, and she's sniffling. She had a little bit of a cold. She's down right next to me and says, Judge, show me how to sing the song. So, and she knew how to sing the song like the back of her hand, but she wanted the songwriters to kind of walk her through it, you know, phrase by phrase and emotionally and stuff. So I do for like a half an hour. And then David says, hey, Judd, why don't you go in there and sing a scratch vocal? Now, I, I, I've got some range, you know, I can get up there, right? But this is written in Whitney's key. And right. she's got a lot more range than I do. And the so, Judd is one of the highest male voices you'll ever hear. But you can only imagine the terror. I, I mean, he did not show that and he did a beautiful job. Well, you have to get the setting too. There's Whitney, but, who's in the studio, darling? Tell him who's there. Whitney Houston, David Foster, and the head of, of Warner Brothers Film Music. Costner and his entourage, Whitney and her entourage, all their peeps, all over oh the studio. Oh my goodness. Because, Judd, can you go in there and sing it? And every head swivels towards me like, what is this, what is this guy going to do? So I do it. What was his name, the head of film music? Gary Lamel. But they were all there in the studio when Judd had to do a scratch vocal. And I said, I know very well and if I had to go in that booth, I would have not sung the notes wrong and they would have taken me out of that booth. Judd did a great job, so much so that everybody applauded when he finished. I think they were applauding just because I got through it. <laughs> the, the performance, but I got through it somehow. And then she kept she kept starting and going. She, she would sing something, right? And then she would go, she'd stop and she'd go, Judd, am I, is that right? You know? And I, everyone in the room, again, would look at me like, because what do you say? I mean, this is Whitney Houston. She would sing anything she'd sing. Every mistake was amazing. It all sounded amazing. So I would say, you know, it sounds amazing, but the, the actual melody goes a little more. Like, oh, yeah, that's right. And then she'd go back and sing it even better. But it's like she was it was just a really, really a dream, Re, really a dream working with her in the studio. She was great. And then we got invited. I think it was Kevin Costner who invited us to the, um, the video shoot with Whitney and her long hair and the white flowing outfit. And when we got there, it was this humongous, um, you know, studio. I mean, it was cavernous. And there was a girl at the end um, of the opposite side from where we're standing, but she was so breathtakingly gorgeous. We said, she must be Whitney standing because she's just- They were setting the scene. They were doing lighting and sound, just kind of doing levels. And we said, oh my God, she's so gorgeous. And then all of a sudden she went, 
hey, Judd, hey, Alan. And it actually was Whitney. She was so all made up and with the so wigs and stuff. She looked amazing. That that beautiful and sing that incredibly. Yeah. It was gifted. She really, she really had all the elements, the it factor, that smile. She was sweet to us and very nice. She sent us, well, you know, she sent us a dozen roses, or um Robin Hurst, her right-hand person did when we got nominated for an Oscar, which is a whole other story. But um but she just was very sweet and very nice to us. And um, it's one of the greatest moments that Jed and I have ever had together and individually. That's amazing. So before we talk about getting the nomination, I'd like to know more <laughs> about the process of submitting Run to You to the Academy Awards. Can you take us through the process of, of filling out the forms that you have to complete? You remember? Because I, I know there's... I don't... I honestly don't remember there even being any forms it's like you have to send you have to send a cue sheet um um yeah i think the publishing company probably pulled that together for us i okay. i i don't remember that being any kind of a hassle whatsoever it was really easy just a lyric sheet maybe in a, a chord chart or something like that and the real the real issue is always just to make sure they just want to know song is written for the film. That's it. You know, so it, if so songs that have been in existence, pre like I Will Always Love You couldn't be nominated for an Oscar because it was pre-existing. It wasn't written for the film. The, the Oscar goes to songs that are written for a film. They release several songs from The Bodyguard. The Bodyguard becomes the biggest, as you know, the biggest one of the biggest albums of all time. It has been on the radio, all those songs. And the album has been out and selling up to, at that point, 30 or 40, 20 or 30. It ended up right now, I think it's in the mid 40, like 45 million copies sold. It's one of the biggest selling. It's the biggest soundtrack of all time. And it's one of the biggest records of all time. So it was. It had been around for months. Okay. Um, now they're going to put out Run To You. And nobody cares. It's like everybody knows Run To You from the album. Everyone, everyone has the album. Right. And so it's like they can't. So it becomes a single and it does fine. If I remember correctly, that was when it just changed. The the billboard charts changed and there was a sound scan based on the number of copies sold and the number, you know, um, and, and so and the cop. You know, the record already sold 30, 40 million. So it wasn't going to sell very many. Nobody was going to buy the single version. Everyone had it. Yeah. So, so our song suffered in that way. I mean. And it was a fourth single, you know, right. so the fourth single. It didn't, it didn't really uh, chart as high as it could have because everybody had already uh, had the record and they started scan uh, scanning the number of records sold um, with the amount of airplay. You take well, it. it wasn't as big a hit as we would have liked. I think it was like in the top 30 or something. I think it was number one adult contemporary, right? Or number two in adult contemporary. It was, right, it was right at the top of the adult contemporary, but not the pop chart. So now the Oscar nominations are going to be coming, right? And we feel like the Oscar voters, who are all, always skew a little bit older to begin with, the Oscar members, probably don't even know the song because they're the ones who are like, you know, they're learning everything that they know from what's really, really popular single-wise at the moment, right? So we're thinking we're at a significant disadvantage here because the, the other big songs from that year were from the Disney movie from uh, Aladdin, I think. Aladdin. You know, we knew Aladdin was going to get a couple of nominations. We thought, well, maybe one our our film will get one or two, but we want we were trying to we were hoping that maybe Run to You could get a nomination too, because we were very proud of it. So we put together this little campaign where we got together with our publishers and we brainstormed how can we kind of tell the Oscar voters 
that we exist just to let them know there's this song that's eligible that they may not know about because it wasn't as um, it wasn't as all over the place on the charts as the other songs. We somehow get a list of all the Oscar members and addresses, which wasn't really that hard to find. Um, and then we decide we're going to get the, we, the publishing company agrees to do this. They footed the bill. We get these really cheapo little cassette players and popcorn buckets and popcorn. And we put the cassette of the song in the cassette player in the popcorn bucket. And we drove it. We got we if you see the pictures from that day where we did this at Pure Music, Pure Music had this huge mansion in the Hollywood Hills. That's where they did business at the time. And they had this huge sprawling grounds and they were covered with popcorn buckets and popcorn and cassettes and like 30, 40, 50 friends of ours all stuffing things into boxes and helping us do this and then loading up them up into trucks and cars. And there's there it is. Unbelievable. Darling. I can't believe you have that. You're unbelievable. Well, no, they're hearing this audio, but but what Alan is showing now is one of the popcorn bucket, buckets and the cassette player. That's a nice little cassette player there. Yeah. yeah. And it says there's a little attachment that says um, they fell in love listening to this song. How now it's your turn to fall in love with Run to You. And then we had a picture of Whitney attached, I think, at the top. I don't remember. And, and I'm missing that, but I still have this. And, That's amazing. And we sent it to every Academy member. Dropped it off most of the time. We, we drove around and dropped it off. And there are hundreds of votes for the music voters in the Academy. Right. Yeah. They're the ones, they're the gates, they're the ones who get the first tier of nomination. And our goal was not to tell people, oh, you got to vote for our song. Our goal was then please listen, listen to the song. Right. Just know it exists. And then you guys do what you want. But we just wanted to feel like we had a fighting chance. And we ended up getting nominated. That's amazing. Well, it worked. And it's 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 bizarre to me to know that a song from the biggest, it was probably one of the biggest, it was one of the biggest movies of the year from the biggest album of the year. The songwriters had to go out and, and basically knock on doors just to get attention. It's it's amazing that you had to do it, but I, I completely understand the circumstances behind it. And who knows what would have happened if we hadn't. We just felt like there was there was a lot of buzz on lots of songs that people knew. Everyone knew those songs. People right. knew Run to You from the album, and they knew Run to You from the film. But I, I will I will always love you. I have nothing. I am every woman. Um, some of those songs weren't nominatable, but all the songs from the Disney films, there were several other songs that year. Everyone they'd all been big successes in themselves as singles. And we just felt, wow, nobody's gonna run to you is gonna get lost in the shuffle. So Let's at least make people make try to up the odds that people have actually heard the song. And if they hear the song, we think, you know, if we build it, they will come, hopefully. So they did. So what was it like to to know that all this work paid off and you got that Oscar nomination? The morning of Unbelievable. Yeah, you get up at 5 30 in the morning because it's um West Coast time and East Coast, I think it's 8 30 in the morning. And the crazy thing is, they said nominees for best song, and they said. And they said two on TV, and, but they didn't. They said two songs from the Bodyguard. They did, but there's there Bodyguard, Bodyguard, and then but there Aladdin, things. Aladdin, and one other film. We didn't, we didn't know. So I called the Academy at five thirty in the morning. Everybody was there. I said, "Can you please tell me the names of the songs that were nominated for best song?" And then they said, "Run to it." I screamed like at the top of my lungs, and then I called them back and said, uh, "Can you just please make sure that you told?" <laughs> the names of the and I and I I called you, I I think I called you and then we were screaming and then I called my we called our parents and it was just 
It was just unbelievable. I called the academy too, and you got to picture this. I had a one-year-old in the next room sleeping. I don't know if you have kids or if I've ever had kids, but when you have a baby and she's actually sleeping, you do not want to wake her up. It's like, okay, we have a break. Okay, good. Okay. So it's 5.30 in the morning. She's asleep. I'm calling the Academy. It's like, yes, congratulations, Judge. You're nominated for an Oscar. My then wife and I were jumping up and down in the bed, like silently screaming. So we wouldn't, ah, so we wouldn't wake the baby. Because <laughs> we didn't like it too loud. I was crying. So like, excited. It was just unbelievable. I was just crying uncontrollably because, you know, it was really, it's, let me tell you something. The win is being nominated. Of course, it's great to, to actually take it home, but the win is just to be one of the. Recognize that way. It's very nice. Yeah. Neither of the two nominated songs from The Bodyguard came close to the massive success that I Will Always Love You had. But both songs got lots of praise from critics due to Houston's interpretation. On the surface, many said, the songs were run-of-the-mill love ballads, but Whitney Houston made the critics sit up and notice. Both songs didn't get their major radio play until after the Academy Awards in 1993, but just about everyone in the world knew about the album, had probably seen the movie, and likely thought about giving the bodyguard some sort of recognition for lifting up the movie through its spectacular music. Another movie likely worrying about splitting votes was the Disney movie Aladdin, which also earned two original song nominations in 1992. This is the second time in history that two movies in one year each earned two original song nominations, the last time being for 1983's Flashdance and Yintel. In that year, Flashdance What a Feeling won the Oscar for the title song. After the death of his longtime writing partner Howard Ashman in March 1991, Alan Minka knew he had to continue working on bringing Ashman's long-standing project Aladdin to the screen. That project was the story of the Arabian street urchin named Aladdin, and it would be the Disney Studios' follow-up to Beauty and the Beast for 1992. Minkin and Ashman started writing songs for Aladdin before they were asked to put the project aside for Beauty and the Beast. When Minkin returned to the project, he was able to keep three songs that he and Ashman pretty much completed. The song score for Aladdin is fairly different from The Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast. Where those films leaned heavily on the Broadway sound, Aladdin went wilder, borrowing the music from the 1930s, particularly in the two songs that the genie sings. One of the genie's songs is one of the Oscar nominees from Aladdin. It's the showstopper, Friend Like Me, which is sung by actor Robin Williams, in a performance that many lobbied to be nominated for an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. And I would agree with that. From the first second the genie opens his mouth, you can sense that only Robin Williams could have done the role this way. In the first 90 seconds, Williams gives us impersonations of Arnold Schwarzenegger, Ed Sullivan, and Groucho Marx before bursting into Friend Like Me. There's really no way to describe the song. It's basically trying to one-up under the sea and be our guest as a modern-day showstopper. And again, no one else but Robin Williams would have made it work. Master, I don't think you quite realize what you got here. So why don't you just ruminate whilst I illuminate the possibilities? Well, Alibaba had them 40 feet. Sherry's had a thousand tails. Master, you in luck, cause up your sleeves, you got a brand of magic never fails. 
You got some power in your corner now. It's heavy ammunition in your camp. You got some punch in your You got who and how. Say all you gotta do is rub that lamp. And I'll say, Mr. Lancer, what will your pleasure be? Let me take your order, jot it down. You ain't never had a friend like me. <laughs> Life is your restaurant, and I'm your melody. Come on, whisper what it is you want. You ain't never had a friend like me. Yes, sir, we pride ourselves on service. You're the boss, the king, the child. Say what you wish, it's yours. True dish about a little more baklavar. As I'm a column, try all of column B. I'm in the mood to help you, dude. You ain't never had a friend like me. No, no, no. Can your friends do this? Can your friends do that? Can your friends pull this off their little hat? Can your friends go poo? Hey, look at him. Abracadabra, let it rip, and then make the sucker disappear. So just sit there, smack your buggy eye, and hit the antelope, you'll be there, friend. You got me bone out, feet ass, certified. You got a genie for a child to fail. I got a power to help you out, so what you wish, I really wanna know. You got a list that's three miles long, no doubt. Well, all you gotta do is rub like so. Mr. Lancer, have a shot, two or three. I'm on the job, you big nabob. You ain't never had a friend, never had a friend. You ain't never had a friend, never had a friend. You ain't never had a friend like me. You ain't never had a friend like me. Friend like me gave Howard Ashman a posthumous nomination his fourth after the three he received for Beauty and the Beast. If you go back through Academy history, you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone who had written lyrics for seven Oscar-nominated songs, all of them completely different from one another. Howard Ashman, with the help of Alan Menken, of course, was able to do that. Friend Like Me ranks as my favorite movie song ever, one that compelled me to buy a ticket to at least a dozen screenings of Aladdin from November 1992 to late winter 1993. On the opposite side of the spectrum from Friend Like Me is the love song A Whole New World, the second nominated song from Aladdin. This gave Tony Award-winning lyricist Tim Rice his first Oscar nomination at age 48 on his first try at writing an original song for the movies. Unlike many of his predecessors and most of his contemporaries, Tim Rice fell into music at a relatively old age, 15 years old, while at boarding school in England, singing lead in a band called the Aardvarks. Rice finished his teenage years with aspirations of being a great singer, but found out in 1964 that his real musical talents came with songwriting and not as much as a performer. Things really changed one year later when he met composer Andrew Lloyd Webber, and the two started on a profitable partnership. If Tim Rice had been born 10 years earlier, or if his first real big hit, Jesus Christ Superstar, had been made in the 1950s, he would have been recruited by Hollywood instantly, as the likes of Frank Lesser, Alan J. Lerner, and Oscar Hammerstein were while they were creating Broadway hit shows. 
Tim Rice was responsible for some astounding lyrics for Jesus Christ Superstar in 1971 and Avida in 1978. And his inevitable leap to Hollywood came in 1991, not to finish the song score for Aladdin, but to take on a new project for Disney. I had the great opportunity to talk with Tim Rice about joining the Disney roster of songwriters. Welcome to the show, Sir Tim. It's great to have you. Great to be here, Jeff. Thank you. So before we start talking about Aladdin, I, I want to say that I'm actually quite surprised that you hadn't written any songs for the movies until the 1990s, especially given your success with stage musicals. So before Disney came calling, had you even been asked to write any movie songs? Yes, we did do one, actually. I'm trying to remember if it's only one. Um, there was a very good film called The Odessa File, which was um, based on a book by Freddie Forsyth. Um, and it was Freddie Forsyth's follow-up book to The Day of the Jackal, which was one of the biggest books of the 70s. And um, we were asked to, well, Andrew was asked to do the entire score for the film, The Odessa File, which, which, which of course he did. And um, I had to provide lyrics for one song. Um, and that was a song called Christmas Dream. It was written uh, uh, for the film, but the film itself, even though it was then 1974, was um, it was directed by Ronnie Neem, actually, Ronald Neem, who was a great and well-known Hollywood director. And um, uh, although the film itself was set um, in 1963, we were writing it in 1974, writing the song. So we were asked to write by Ronnie Neem, we were asked to write a song which could have been a hit or played on the radio in 1963. And the opening scene which featured the song was at Christmas time in Munich. I think it was certainly a German city. I'm sure it was Munich. And um, so it had to be something Christmassy that was already 10 years out of date. And we wrote a song called Christmas Dream, which owed a little, if I'm not being unfair, to um, Andrew and indeed to either of us, um, it owed a little bit to Wooden Heart, the great song by Elvis Presley, which was a sort of very folky, um, romantic tune with a German lyric and an English lyric. And we called it Christmas Dream and the great Perry Como recorded it. So I was very excited that um, Perry Como, who I'd heard of for many, many years and was a very popular singer when I was at school, um, coming towards the end of his great career, and he recorded it and it was a nice song and it, it you know sold tolerably well as a single nothing sensational but it still gets played a bit most christmases and so that was our our major contribution to a film but of course jesus christ superstar was filmed in its totality in 1973 and evita um that was actually that was quite a bit later that was post disney um but superstar and there was um, a video film of Joseph. So um, there was one other song we did for a film even before the Odessa file called Gumshoe, directed by Stephen Frears, now Sir Stephen Frears. And that starred Albert Finney. And we wrote a song called Baby You're Good For Me, which was a sort of rock and roll spoof. So nothing sensational, but a couple of good, nice songs to get us going, as it were, in the film world. So you're getting your feet wet about what that whole whole business would be like. Yes, absolutely. Although I was not involved in anything like the way I was involved with the Disney projects that I became um, connected with later, Aladdin, Lion King, etc. Right. So if I'm not mistaken, 
the folks at Disney first hired you to work on what would become The Lion King and then asked you to write some songs for Aladdin. Is that correct? That's spot on. The Lion King was barely more than a sheet of paper and a couple of drawings of possible characters. I always remember there was a drawing of, the, of what became Scar, the villain, the evil lion. But it was not much more, and it wasn't even a, the green light had not been pressed. But I, would, I was sort of hanging around Disney saying, got any jobs, mate? And um, it was, Disney were involved at the time in 1989-90. They were involved with the possibility of doing the Avita movie, which they didn't do in the end. They had an involvement with it, but it wasn't 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 a Disney re release, um, and that came out in 1996. But my work with Disney on the animation side in the in the in the animation end of the company was from roughly 1990 to 1994 five, and um, when I I was originally approached um, to help out on a Dolly Parton film called what was it called now? Gosh, um, anyway. Straight talk, that's it. And um, Dolly, the great Dolly, was playing a, an agony aunt, as we call them in England. I don't know if you call them that in America. Um, the sort of uh, person who answers your problems, um, you know, sort of Anne Landers type. type oh, like character. an advice columnist. That's it, an advice columnist. Well, we 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 call them agony aunts or agony. I mean, you know, in a in a friendly way. We're not. We're, we're of course not taking the Mickey. Right. And um, it was it was a it was a good film, but it it, it didn't do it spectacularly, but. I'd been hanging around Disney, um, talking to people about the possibility of a Vita being a movie. And I was dropping hints all the time saying, what I really like to do is to work on some of the animation stuff because I, I always loved cartoons. And from my childhood, they were a big influence on me, American um, Disney films in particular, Peter Pan and Bambi and Dumbo and all those films, um, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty. I'd seen a lot and I loved them. And um, they, they obviously bore me in mind, um, but they were just simultaneously with, 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 with me being there slightly by chance. They were um, having a great revival under Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg, a great revival of the animation scene, which Disney had, I wouldn't say they, they, they'd gone, you know, abandoned it, but, but, but they hadn't had a serious run of hits in the animation world for a long time. And they came back in a big way with Little Mermaid in about 1988, I'm guessing, might have been 87. And that was Alan Menken and Howard Ashman who wrote the songs. And the songs were great. Then that was a hit. That, that was beginning to the, 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 the big um, Disney revival. And Alan and Howard were then approached to work on Beauty and the Beast which became even bigger and was nominated, the whole film was nominated for an Oscar, the first time that it happened with an animated film, I think. And it was had some great songs, as indeed Mermaid did, but um, it had some really good you know, hits and everything. And um, their work was quite rightly compared with the best of Broadway, even though at that point it was only on a film. And they were working on Beauty and the Beast as I was approached to do something with this other idea they had, which was which was based on the Lion King, and the, and Alan and Howard finished Beauty and the Beast, um, which became a huge hit, and then they began working on the next one, which was Aladdin. And Disney at this point thought things are going pretty well. Maybe we could do two animated features at the same time. 
obviously one would come out a year ahead of the next. So while Aladdin was still going on, they began looking for a new idea. And Lion King was the idea. It wasn't even called Lion King to begin with. It was called King of the Jungle, which right. is a bit silly really, because there wasn't a jungle in the story. But um, <laughs> it was obviously going to be set in Africa, wonderful scenery, very exciting visuals, all that. And um, they they got me into a couple of very early meetings. And at that point, as I think I said before, it was just a sheet of paper with a vague story um, about a, a lion cub, um, his wicked uncle murdering his father. And not much more. And I was, there's a couple of drawings of, of, of um, possible characters. And I was asked, would I be interested in writing the words for the songs, if indeed there were going to be any songs? And I said, of course. And after a while, when they more or less decided to go for it, because they thought the story had potential, and story is always king, um, they said, well, who would you like to write the music? And you can't have Alan Menken, because he's working on Aladdin with Howard, and he's busy. And then I've been working on Lion King, done a couple of songs with Elton, and I've been working um, uh, on the movie at Disney, going out to Los Angeles a lot, because um, I was still living in London. Um, and But I would come out about once a month and do 10 days and then go home and do a bit of work and then et cetera, et cetera. And um, suddenly um, Tom Schumacher and Peter Schneider, who were two of the top executives at the time said, Forget Lion King for a few weeks. We need you urgently on Aladdin. I said, really? And the tragic news was that Howard Ashman was very ill and could not continue. And Howard was a brilliant lyricist and he hadn't finished the work on Aladdin. And there were still two or three songs needed. And I went over to meet Alan Menken, who I admired greatly, but hadn't met at that point. And I think we got on pretty well. And it was an emergency, really. Um, we had to finish the film. Disney had to get it finished. It was all scheduled to come out at a certain time. And the first tune Alan gave me was A Whole New World. It wasn't called that then, but um, it was a wonderful tune. Um, I, I, I had to see the whole of Aladdin as quickly as possible to get a feel for the film. And of course, the film wasn't finished, so I would see bits of it in there's maybe the odd little bit missing here and there. Um, but I heard the songs that Howard had already done with Alan, and they were brilliant. Um, and I thought, you know, you've got a friend like me and Prince Ali and all that. And I thought, yikes, this is quite a tough act to follow. But I was given this wonderful tune, which became A Whole New World. And that was very inspirational for me. It was such a lovely tune. It was something I thought, I can't cock this one up. This is a really, you know, great opportunity to write a decent lyric. Yeah. What do you find to be the biggest difference in writing songs for a movie versus writing them for the stage? I've often asked been I've often been asked that. I'm not sure there is a great difference, really, from my point, you know, from my point of view anyway. Um the key thing with anything that is not just a song, like a sort of, if you like, a, a an out-of-context pop song, however brilliant it might be, it's often something that is just a three or four minutes of a mood or an idea. But most of the songs in the films that I've worked on and nearly all of them in the shows I've worked on, they are songs sung by a specific character. The song may work out of context with other people and one hopes it does, but basically you're singing, we're not trying to write a pop song. We're trying to write a song that advances the story. And 
that's been true for everything I've done in on both stage and film. So there wasn't a huge difference. There was more difference for me in the fact that Elton liked to write the words first, whereas Alan Menken, Andrew Lloyd Webber, people like that I'd work with um, usually like to do the tune first. But the key thing is the story. But the interesting thing about writing a musical, say, or 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 or, or a film, is that you can express different points of view. If you if you if you write a one-off song um, that was basically um, putting forward one point of view, that's that's absolutely fine. But in a in a musical, you can you can have an argument between two people. And they're, they're expressing different views about the same thing. There's a big argument in Vita between Ava Perron and Che Guevara. There's one in Superstar between Jesus and Judas. And um, it's, I find it quite exciting to be able to put forward a discussion, an argument, a contretemps between two opposing characters, which is not something you can always do just on a straight pop song or, or, or an album even. One of the three songs that Tim Rice wrote for Aladdin was A Whole New World, and it accompanies Aladdin and Princess Jasmine as they ride the magic carpet around the world to places such as Greece, Egypt, and China. Jasmine has been sheltered inside the palace all of her life, and this is her first opportunity to see things such as the Sphinx and the Chinese Imperial City. It's Aladdin's chance to woo her in his disguise as a prince intending to marry her. The trip helps Jasmine shed her tough exterior, and she begins to fall for Aladdin during this duet, which features overlapping lyrics. I can show you the world Shining, shimmering, splendid Tell me, princess, now when did you last let your heart decide? I can open your eyes, take you wonder by wonder, over sideways and under, on a magic carpet ride, a whole new world, a new fantastic point of view. No one to tell us no or where to go or say we're only dreaming. A whole new world, a dazzling place I never knew. But when I'm way up here, it's crystal clear that now I'm in a whole new world with you. Now I'm in a whole new world. I'm like a shooting star I've come so far I can't go back to where I used to be Every turn a surprise Every moment gets better I'll chase them anywhere There's time to spare Let me share this whole new Where will be? 
For the first time in recent years, the speaking voices of the main characters in a Disney movie don't perform the songs. Scott Weinger and Linda Larkin were the speaking voices of Aladdin and Jasmine, respectively, but neither were trained singers, and I don't think they had any issues with their replacements. Weinger was replaced by Brad Kane, who had the same vocal range as Weinger and had some history with Tim Rice as a member of the chorus in the Broadway staging of Evita when Kane was eight years old. Larkin's replacement brought a much larger pedigree with her. Leah Salonga was the toast of Broadway when Aladdin came out, having won the Tony Award for her performance in Miss Saigon about the same time she was asked to sing A Whole New World. Though Salonga matched Linda Larkin's voice well, it's sad that Jasmine wasn't given more singing opportunities as a way to showcase more of Leah Salonga. Howard Ashman and Alan Menken had written a comedic song for Jasmine, Call Me a Princess, but it was taken out of the movie when Jasmine became a stronger character. How many lyric versions did you go through before you settled on the final version of A Whole New World? I don't think that many. I mean, I obviously would wrestle with the words when I'm on my own, having got this wonderful tune. Alan wanted to call it The World at Your Feet. And I thought, I don't think feet are very commercial. I don't think people want to sing about feet in in whatever context. Right. <laughs> Too many songs saying, I love your feet. Um, so I didn't think that was a, I mean, that was a sort of working title, but um, the idea that we were the, the the singers were above the world and were looking down and 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 it was something wonderful and and the sequence in the movie which hadn't been completed because it was difficult to complete it without knowing exactly what the characters were singing but we knew they were going to be on a magic carpet we knew they were going to be flying around the world and seeing lots of sights and once I got the title a whole new world it it didn't take an incredibly long time to write um, I obviously wanted to make it work with Alan's wonderful music. The, the rhyming pattern and the structure kind of suggested itself because the tune was so strong. And um, I don't remember making a lot of changes. I'm, sh- I'm sure the first time I... I mean, there are one or two... Um, goodness knows where they are, but there are one or two early versions of the lyric lying around, but, the, but there's not a big difference. Okay. Um, and I, I had fun occasionally putting in little references to, I mean, there's a, there's a, at the end, it's there's a line called A Wondrous Place, which was a hit record for a, a British pop star called Billy Fury, who nobody had really heard of in in America. Um, brilliant though he was, he's, he's sad to say he died many years ago. And I, and I believe A Wondrous Place was actually an American song. I've now forgotten if I ever knew who, who originated it, but... I, I always quite enjoy slipping in odd little references. I mean, it fitted the plot perfectly. You know, a wondrous place, just, 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 just towards the end of the song, um, which described the whole new world. It was a wondrous place, and um, but basically, it was not one of the harder songs I had to write. Funnily enough, but I think sometimes if the if you know what you have to say, i.e., what a wonderful world, if you like. Thank you, Louis Armstrong. If you if you if you know what you're trying to say, and you've got a great tune, it makes it a lot easier. Right. So, and you got two wonderful people to sing the the film version. Uh, did you yeah. have any input on getting Leah Salonga to perform the song? Not directly, except I did 
Um, I heard of Leah Salonga, who was not quite the star that she became at that point. She was known, but she hadn't, you know, she hadn't become really established. And um, I actually asked her as a favor to do a demo of Can You Feel the Love Tonight when I was trying to convince one or two executives at Disney that this was a good song. So you say you, say you didn't know Brad Kane before you worked with him? No, I, I, I didn't. I mean, I, it's hard to remember now, but I'm pretty certain we had a lot of auditions. Um, I remember going to auditions. Um, I don't remember Leah doing an audition. I suspect she might have been already selected, but they probably hadn't signed her up for some reason, and they were listening to other people. But there were a lot of auditions um, for people to come in and sing, and obviously, Whole New World, they didn't know the song at that point. It was before the song was issued. So we had a lot of people, good good performers, mainly from theatre world, um, coming in to sing ballads and and audition for it. And Brad Kane definitely emerged from that process. And I don't think he was particularly well known beforehand. Leah Salonga was better known, but I can't remember, I'm ashamed to say. I think she'd done Miss Saigon. Yeah, it was um, right at the same time. Yeah. So she was clearly brilliant, but I think there was a reason why we still listened to a few ladies singing because maybe Leah you know, might not have been free or whatever. But I contributed to the comments. I mean, I, I might say occasionally, well, that 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 singer's great. Put that on possible pile. Um, goodness knows if anybody took any notice of my views, but um, I had a few. <laughs> and I was very happy with Leah and Brad. Well, there is actually a connection. I guess you don't know this with um, your history with Brad is he performed in Avita on Broadway when he was about eight or nine years old. He, I think he was one of the chorus boys. Actually, that rings a bell now. I think I think I remember. I remember his mum was was was. Um, and Brad was still quite young. He was probably eighteen or something. Right. And, um. Uh. I remember his mum. What was her name? She was she was very lively, very funny. I thought if there was a part for her, you know, she she'd walk it. Um. Anyway, I think she might have told me that. Just as he did for Beauty and the Beast. Alan Minkin felt a pop version of the film's love song would work well in the end credits. People Bryson came back to sing the male side of this duet, pairing with Regina Bell on this version of A Whole New World. Bryson and Bell had worked together before, scoring a modest hit in 1987 with the song Without You. Show you the world Shining, shimmering, splendid Tell me, princess Now when did you last Let your heart decide I can open your eyes Take you wonder by wonder Over sideways and under on a magic carpet ride A whole new world A new fantastic point of view No one to tell us no Or where to go Or say we're only dreaming A whole new world 
A Whole New World went to number one on the Billboard charts, the first time a Disney song did that. And the song that it knocked off the number one spot was I Will Always Love You, which had been reigning supreme for a record-breaking 14 weeks until the first week of March 1993. The Oscar ballots were set to be shipped the week after A Whole New World made its way to the top of the Billboard chart, which had not been a great indicator of a song guaranteeing an Oscar win recently but definitely couldn't hurt exposure-wise for those Oscar voters who listen to the radio regularly. So, two films with two nominations each, with both films becoming the two most successful films of 1992, at least in terms of box office. The film that earned the fifth nominee for original song of 1992 was called The Mambo Kings. It made one-twentieth of the U.S. box office of Aladdin and the Bodyguard, but it's still significant as Spanish actor Antonio Banderas' English-language film debut, as well as a great vehicle for Amanda Sante. They play fictional Cuban brothers who move to New York and reach for their dreams of being famous musicians. The brothers move to the United States because the younger brother, Nestor, has lost the love of his life, Maria, to another man. Moving to New York, according to his big brother, was the best way for Nestor to forget about Maria. The Mambo Kings was directed by Arnie Glimpshire, a former art dealer who got into motion pictures in the 1980s as a producer. After buying the film rights to the book that the Mambo Kings is based on, Glimpshire knew there had to be an original song that Nestor writes for his beloved Maria. Using a pre-existing song would not have worked for the story, so... Glimpshire did what a few directors had done in the past and decided he would try his hand at writing the only original song in the Mambo Kings, called Beautiful Maria of My Soul. 
On the bus from Miami to New York, we see Nestor writing the song and later expressing his desire to send the sheet music to Maria as a way for her to understand his undying love. We first hear the song about 57 minutes into the movie, when Nestor and Cesar are performing at a club. When they finish the song, they meet a man who turns out to be Desi Arnaz. He likes the song so much that he asks the brothers to travel to Hollywood and perform it on an episode of I Love Lucy. This never happened in real life, but it's a real turning point in the movie. Everyone in the Mambo Kings band, as well as Nestor's wife and Cesar's girlfriend, gather in New York to watch the episode. Everyone loves watching the performance of Beautiful Maria, except for Nestor's wife, Dolores. She's known about Maria, but hears through the song how much Nestor will always love Maria. In the sunlight of your smile In the summer of our life In the magic of love Storms above scatter away Lovers dreaming in the night Reaching for paradise But as the distance from you grows All that my heart ever knows Hunger for your kiss Longing for your touch Beautiful Maria Of my soul Filling all my nights Haunting all my days If I ever love again, even then, nothing will change, and the taste of you remains, clinging to paradise, but as the distance from you grows, all that my heart Oh, 
If I ever love again, even then, nothing will change, and the taste of you remains, clinging to paradise, but as the By the way, that really is Antonio Banderas and Armando Sante singing. The two were so devoted to their roles that they even learned how to play the instruments they play in the movie. That adds a sense of realism to the movie, especially when the brothers become successful and play in big clubs. Beautiful Maria of My Soul got a fifth performance over the end credits by the band Los Lobos, who had a hit in 1987 with a re-recording of the Richie Valens song La Bamba. It's been quite a while since an original song has had so much exposure in its movie, but the multiple performances had to have had some influence on the members of the Academy's music branch. Since none of the versions of Beautiful Maria got commercial releases to compete with the songs from The Bodyguard or Aladdin, it shows how well-crafted the song is and how well it fits into the plot of the movie to earn that Oscar nomination. It also shows how well Warner Brothers, the studio behind the Mambo Kings, marketed the song to Academy voters. The result was three nominated songs from Warner Brothers movies in 1992, two from The Bodyguard and one from The Mambo Kings. Competition for the original Song Academy Award nomination was fierce in 1992, and some songs that didn't become nominees were quite worthy. This was the first year that I had paid full attention to the Academy Awards, and I was quite intrigued by the fact that The Bodyguard and Aladdin monopolized the original song category when the announcements of the Academy Award nominations were made. The big talk of the Oscar nominations that year was The Crying Game, including the speculation that Jay Davidson might be listed as a nominee for Best Supporting Actress instead of Best Supporting Actor as a way to keep the big secret of the film from being spoiled. The nominations announcement also shocked me because I thought the song, The Crying Game, was written specifically for the movie, but I found out later that the song was written in 1964 and thus not eligible for an Oscar nomination. Though Alan Menken had received two more Oscar nominations for songwriting in 1992, 
he had a chance to earn at least one more that year with another Disney musical called Newsies. He was working on this film at the same time he was writing songs for Aladdin and finishing up work on Beauty and the Beast. Mencken worked with lyricist Jack Feldman to help him write songs about newspaper delivery boys in 1899. The two knew each other from their time together at the BMI Lehman Engel Musical Theater Workshop many years earlier. The only previous movie songwriting credit Feldman had was doing one song for the 1987 Disney animated movie Oliver and Company. But Feldman had caught lightning in a bottle in 1978 as co-writer of the Barry Manilow sing-along hit Copacabana. Newsies isn't a bad movie, but it definitely feels like it should have been born on the Broadway stage instead of the silver screen. The acting, singing, dancing, well, everything makes the movie feel like a Broadway show. Though the successful Disney animated movies would go on from screen to stage, Newsies should have done the reverse. And of course, it did eventually get on the stage. But it was a little too late. The songs that Minkin and Feldman wrote don't stand out too much, especially when held up to anything from Aladdin or The Bodyguard. Before The Bodyguard gave us I Will Always Love You in November 1992, another movie featured a song that took the music world by storm. And this one was written for the movie, giving it a chance for an Academy Award nomination. The movie was Boomerang, with Eddie Murphy as a playboy who tries to woo his boss and romantic adversary played by Robin Givens. The movie featured five songs written by Daryl Simmons, Babyface Edmonds, and L.A. Reid, including the smash hit End of the Road. Originally, Babyface Edmonds wanted to sing the song himself, but he felt that the rising R&B quartet of Boys to Men was a better fit for the ballad. His gamble paid off with the song, which went to number one on the Billboard Hot 100 chart on August 15, 1992, and stayed there for 13 weeks. The song is barely heard in the film, maybe a total of 90 seconds, with no real relevance to the plot other than being a good pop song playing in Eddie Murphy's apartment on date night. That is probably why the Academy didn't hold the song in high regard and give it an Oscar nomination. We belong together And you know that I'm right Why do you play with my heart? Why do you play with my mind? You said we'd be forever Sitting there the How could you Not since Elvis Presley's Hound Dog in 1956 had a song spent more than 11 weeks at number one, 
and it was End of the Road that took the throne. End of the Road didn't hold on to this record for very long, because I Will Always Love You began its run of 14 weeks at number one, three weeks after End of the Road was yanked out of the number one spot. Madonna was making yet another play for an Oscar nomination after being shunned multiple times in the late 1980s. And this time she teamed up with her producer, Shep Pettibone, for a song to be performed in her follow-up to Dick Tracy called A League of Their Own. The movie was directed by Penny Marshall and told the story of the women's baseball league that existed in the latter years of World War II into the 1950s. Madonna played a member of one of the teams, and the producers felt it was only natural to ask Madonna to contribute a song for the film. Instead of writing something that would fit the period of the bulk of the film, Madonna and Shep Pettibone wrote the very modern This Used to Be My Playground, which plays during the end credits. It works well as a memorial to the players and serves as the voice of the Gina Davis character, who we saw in the museum in the present day reminiscing about her time playing baseball. The song spent one week at the top of the Billboard Hot 100 in August 1992, but that didn't convince the Academy to get over their Madonna apathy. The Hollywood Foreign Press Association still loved Madonna and nominated This Used to Be My Playground for the Golden Globe Award. Three songs from Aladdin made the cut for the Golden Globes, the first time three songs were nominated for that award from one film. In addition to Friend Like Me and A Whole New World, the other showstopper, Prince Ali, made the cut for Aladdin. None of the original songs from The Bodyguard made it through, probably because the Golden Globes nominations were determined by movie journalists, many of whom didn't have a kind word about the movie. A Whole New World got the momentum going with the Golden Globe win one month before the Oscar nominations. I was expecting to see three Oscar nominations for Aladdin after the Golden Globes, but I have a feeling that Prince Ali was 6th or 7th in the preferential voting results, fighting for that 5th spot with This Used to Be My Playground. The Grammy ceremony on February 24, 1993, didn't feature songs from The Bodyguard or Aladdin because they were released after the deadline for this Grammy ceremony. In their place were some very heavy hitters, including Tears in Heaven from the 1991 movie Rush, 
The song won Record of the Year and Song of the Year for Eric Clapton and Will Jennings. Tears in Heaven competed with the title song from Beauty and the Beast in both categories, as well as the Grammy category for Best Song Written for a Motion Picture or Television. Beauty and the Beast managed to win that category over Beautiful Maria of My Soul, as well as another song from A League of Their Own. It wasn't This Used to Be My Playground, but rather Now and Forever by Carole King. That song was going to be performed in the epilogue, but it was moved to the beginning of the film after Madonna submitted her song. So the only thing that could give us an accurate picture of which song was going to win the Academy Award was the Golden Globes. Even as a veteran of award shows, getting his first Oscar nomination had a special thrill for Tim Rice, with some reservations. Here's what he said about his odds to win an Oscar. Well, I was very pleased. I mean, obviously, I was thrilled. I, I, to be honest, I wasn't certain we'd win because I thought, um, and I felt a bit guilty about it because I thought Howard would have got the Oscar if he if he lived. Um, so I was really, I almost felt I've got to win the Oscar because otherwise people will say, well, obviously he was no good. Howard would have won it. Um, and Howard would have won it, don't get me wrong. There's no question he would have won it. Alan Rich and Judd Friedman had different perspectives about being first-time nominees. And we knew we didn't have a chance. Right. Aladdin was just a juggernaut. Those songs, there's no way that anybody was going to win except for Alan, Alan Menken. And uh, that was the Disney era. You know, the early 90s, there was, there was no way a song was going to beat those, those songs. For the first Oscar, which was the one Clint Eastwood was nominated, like 10 Oscars for Unforgiven. Right. Same right. as the bodyguard. They have a nominee's luncheon, an Oscar nominee's luncheon at the Beverly Hill, Beverly Hilton, right, darling? Mm-hmm. I think it's the Beverly Hilton Hotel. Little red carpet. You walk in, there's a line of, it's just the nominees and they're plus ones. It's very, just so that the nominees can get to know one another and say hi a little bit, right? This is before the Oscars, of course. You walk in, there's a little red carpet, there's a hallway. And down this hallway, the, at the, that time, Arthur Hamilton, who's the head of the Academy at that time, is out announcing one by one the Oscar nominees as they come in to the press. The press is on both sides of this little red carpet hallway in rafters with their cameras. Nobody used cell phones at the time. This is in the early 90s, right? So they all have real cameras with flashbulbs. So Arthur Hamilton is announcing the Oscar nominees. And we're standing behind Clint Eastwood and Francis Farmer? Yes. Yes, his Francis Fisher, Francis something, yeah, Francis, Francis Fisher, Fisher yeah. his girlfriend, I think, who I don't think was his wife, but they were together for a while, right? And we're standing behind him, so the, there's applause for some nominee. They walk by, and then Clint Eastwood steps up, and Arthur Hamilton says, "Ladies and gentlemen of the press, I'd like to introduce a man who needs no introduction. Uh, you know, multi nominee for all these films, blah, 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 blah. And this year he's nominated for like 10 different Oscars for his amazing film he directed and starred in Unforgiven, Mr. Clint Eastwood. And the place goes crazy, right? And the flash bulbs, you couldn't even, it was blinding. You had to like put on 10 pairs of shades. You know, you, oh my God, yeah, please stop, right? Goes on for like 20 seconds and he's waving and he's a very, very nice guy. We talked to him at the really nice, sweet guy and he walks by, right? Then we walk up. And Arthur Hamilton goes, and ladies and gentlemen, with our plus ones, he goes, nominated for best song written for a motion picture for their song, Run to You from the Bodyguard, Alan and Judd. 
And the entire press corps like turns like this, would take the head swivel and one little flash could be go. Oh, oh no. <laughs> and then they just look back down at their notes and they're kind of going back to write their stories about Clint Eastwood. And we just start laughing and walk into the room for the luncheon. Yeah. So there you go. That's the dichotomy between stars and behind the scene people. A year after his double win for Beauty and the Beast, critics and newspaper reporters seemed certain that Alan Menken could pull off the double again for Aladdin. The wait for Minkin's double repeat had to wait until Leah Salonga and Brad Kane got through a stylized staging of A Whole New World, complete with a flying carpet and about 30 dancers. Unlike the previous year's performance of the title song from Beauty and the Beast, only the film performers of A Whole New World were on stage to perform at the Oscars, so Peeble Bryson and Regina Bell could only watch the show at home. It looked like another double dip for Minkin was definitely in the cards, unless the bodyguard was going to ride the momentum of being the most popular soundtrack of all time. The big disappointment of the show was not having Whitney Houston singing the two songs from the bodyguard. She had just given birth to her daughter 25 days before the show, so she was in no condition to give the songs the energy they needed. In her place for both songs was Natalie Cole, accompanied on piano by David Foster. It was never going to be as good as Whitney Houston, I'm sure, but Natalie Cole was the next best thing, having won Grammys for Album of the Year and Record of the Year just six weeks earlier. And taking the place of Antonio Banderas, who was not yet the superstar he was about to become in about nine months, was Placido Domingo for Beautiful Maria of My Soul. Not sure why an Italian opera singer was hired to sing a Cuban song, and not his three tenors colleague, Jose Carreras. There was also a new song written for the Oscar telecast called Ladies' Day to fit the ceremony's tribute to women in the movies. John Kander and Fred Ebb wrote it for their special lady, Liza Minnelli, who sang it well, but the performance felt more like a space filler than a celebration of women in the movies. Show producer Gil Cates didn't get Robin Williams to sing Friend Like Me, particularly because Williams was against the idea. So I guess the only other choice was former TV star Nell Carter, who did okay dressed as a genie trying to be as funny as Robin Williams. After Nell Carter did her best with Friend Like Me, the battle between Aladdin and the bodyguard was to be settled in original song. Quincy Jones entered the stage with Lena Horne, who never got the opportunity to sing an Oscar-nominated song, but was definitely a trailblazer for other black women who followed her as leading ladies in major motion pictures. Looking as young and fresh as ever, Horn opened the envelope and announced that Disney won its fourth original song Oscar for A Whole New World. I was, on the one hand, relieved because it meant that, 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 that I'd done the film justice, or at least the Oscar people thought I had. Um, and... You know that 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 I'd, I'd, if you like, helped Alan. His wonderful music. He hadn't suffered by losing Howard. I mean, of course, he'd suffered emotionally, and um, Howard may well have done an infinitely better lyric. But I sort of passed the very stiff test, and I knew that Howard's family were thinking, you know, Tim's done a good job, but really, it should be Howard. And I, I would have agreed with them. And I did mention in my speech, I did mention Howard, of course, very important. In some respects, particularly in the funny songs, I think our styles were quite similar. I mean, if you listen to Joseph, 
um, in particular, you'll find that it's really not a million miles away from Howard's style, which mm. is a coincidence because I, I didn't know Howard Ashman's work until long after I'd written Joseph. Right. And in your Oscar speech, you also mentioned Sammy Kahn, who had, uh, you said was your idol, and he had just died two months earlier. Yes, Did you yeah. ever have the opportunity to meet him? Oh, yes. I got to know Sammy quite well. Good. Um, I spoke at his memorial. Um, now, he was lovely. He was very encouraging to me because when Avita came out on Broadway, it got terrible reviews. Um, it had been a big hit in London and um, it got slaughtered. Sammy wrote me a very nice letter and he said, don't worry, it's a good show. It will be a hit. And um, we all get bad reviews. And um, I became, I mean, I was a friend of his anyway by that point, but but I became a very good friend of his and his lovely wife, Tita, who is still around. And I still keep in touch, close touch with her and go and see her whenever I'm in L.A. In just three years, Alan Menken was in rarefied air when it came to his Oscar tallies. He had won six Oscars, second only to Alfred Newman in terms of Oscars given to composers. His three songwriting Oscars tied him with Paul Francis Webster, Harry Warren, Jay Evans, and Ray Livingston. Only Johnny Mercer and Sammy Kahn had won four songwriting Oscars up to that point. There was more history for Disney as The Mouse House won its fourth straight original song Oscar, beating the record set from 1949 to 1951 by Paramount. But Paramount still had the record for the most original song Oscar wins by a studio with 14, ranging from 1937 to 1986. Judd Friedman and Alan Rich also told me about their memories of that night at the Academy Awards. Both Judd and I have uh, lost both of our parents, and we had the joy of, I now get choked up, we had the joy of taking them to the Oscars and the Grammys. Was, piling into these limousines that the, the record company uh, Warner Brothers sent for us and all our parents, you know, they're like 10 or 12 people at one of those huge stretch limousines and going to the Oscars together and all getting, we got tickets for them, of course. I have a twin brother, but on the first Oscars and we got there early and we were sitting, we were sitting in like the fourth row and we couldn't believe the, seat, the incredible seats they gave us for the Oscars. So my brother's sitting there and she's sitting next to this lovely blonde girl. And my brother's being a very proud brother. And he goes, you know, my brother's nominated for an Oscar tonight. And the girl says, my dad's nominated for 10 Oscars tonight. And it was Clint Eastwood's daughter. The bodyguard went home empty-handed at the 1993 Oscars, but it cleaned up almost one year later at the Grammy Awards on March 1st, 1994. The soundtrack album won Album of the Year, the first time a movie soundtrack had won the award since Saturday Night Fever. I Will Always Love You was the clear favorite for Record of the Year, which it won over A Whole New World, among some other top-notch songs. And in the Song of the Year category, Alan Menken and Tim Rice were surprise winners for A Whole New World, the eighth movie song to win the award. The other nominees in that category included If I Lose My Faith in You from Sting, River of Dreams from Billy Joel, and I Would Do Anything for Love by Meatloaf. Because it was written many years earlier, I Will Always Love You was not eligible for this award. And further down the Grammy ballot that year was Best Song Written for a Motion Picture. The two songs each from Aladdin and The Bodyguard that were nominated for the Oscar competed again, 
with a whole new world taking the win again. It turned out to be a big night for Alan Minkin and Tim Rice, each winning three Grammys. Yes, that was extraordinary. I didn't think for one minute we'd get that. I was amazed to be nominated. We, we, we picked up a few less famous Grammys earlier in the night or in the evening, the afternoon, the afternoon they had some awards when we got sort of best children's song, best song in a movie, best or various things. And I'd had about four Grammys already. And I thought I should have bought a bigger carrier bag. Um, and then, but we were up against Neil Young, I think, Sting. I can't remember who they were, right. but they were serious names. And I hadn't, I mean, I, I don't do that anyway, because I think it's bad luck, but I hadn't prepared to say anything. Um, I think I thank the Everly Brothers. I can't remember um, who were a big influence on me in in my rock and roll youth. Um, but that was that didn't quite sink in until a bit later. And I thought, hang on, song of the year. You're not just up against a few songs in a movie, in other movies. You're up against any song. I mean, not many people get the chance to win that one. I was just very lucky. I think. Yeah, and sometimes luck is a factor, but it's a really good song. It is a nice song. I mean. Um, it's 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 been a hit in Britain. I mean, it's a hit first time round for Peebo and Regina, and then it was it's it's been at least once on the charts again with other people in England. Disney had a lot of momentum after Aladdin's big wins at the Oscars, and then at the 1994 Grammys. The studio didn't have an animated film to release in 1993, with their next big project given plenty of time to finish production. But the anticipation was high in November 1993 when the trailer for the next Disney animated musical was shown in theaters. Instead of a compilation of scenes and maybe a hint of one of the songs featured, the trailer was just the opening four minutes of the movie and the song that accompanied it. The song was Circle of Life for the movie The Lion King. I remember being so amazed by those four minutes that I often found myself sneaking into the theater showing Sister Act 2 just to see that scene again during the trailer presentations. By the fifth showing, I think I knew the song by heart, and I couldn't wait until summer 1994. But before we talk about The Lion King, we have to work through the Oscar nominees from 1993. Those songwriters came mostly from the pop world, a major shift from the Broadway sensibility that the category had for four years. We'll explore those songs on the next episode of the Best Song Podcast. I really enjoyed exploring the songs of 1992 with you. A big thanks goes to Victor Joss for sponsoring this episode and being a big supporter of the show, and to Judd Friedman, Alan Rich, and Tim Rice for sharing their memories with us. All three of them will be back on the show to give us some scoop on writing more Oscar-nominated songs. Thanks to all of you for singing along with me on the Best Song Podcast. Let's do it again next time. The Best Song Podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.